0: It's my great pleasure to introduce Meg Jay. She's a Ph.D., assistant clinical professor at the University of Virginia and maintains a private practice in Charlottesville. So if you need to talk to her afterwards, she has office hours. Professor Jay earned her Ph.D. in clinical psychology and and gender studies from the University of California at Berkeley, uh, where she was a research associate with the Mills Longitudinal Study, one of the longest-running studies of female adult development in the world. Her research on women, depression, and gender was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and was published in the Journal of American Psychoanalytic Association and as the Simmons Prize article in the Studies in Gender and Sexuality. Professor uh, Jay's work on assessment of depression has been published in the Psychological Assessment magazine. Um, An award-winning lecture, Professor Jay served as an adjunct faculty member at Berkeley where she taught clinical psychology, personality, psychology, social psychology, and psychology of gender, and is an adjunct faculty in the Access Institute in San Francisco, where she taught identity development. Professor Jay currently supervises doctoral students in clinical psychology here at the university. She has served as a fellow in the American Psychoanalytic Association, the Center for the Study of Sexual Cultures, and the Robert Stoller uh, Foundation. She earned her BA here at the university with high distinction in psychology, and she spent her own early something, her early 20 something years as an outward bound instructor. And I should also note she's recently written a book called The Defining Decade, which will be the subject matter of her talk today. Um, and it came out in April. It's been featured in, in New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. And um, as she told me an interesting story that um, one mother told her that. Her, her Mother's Day present would be her daughter reading the book. So it, it's a good one. Let's, let's welcome Meg Jay.
1: Um, it's such a pleasure to be here today. I'm going to be talking about life's most defining moments. One of my most defining moments was being an undergraduate here at University of Virginia. So it's no, so nice to be back talking to you all today. Um, Althea wanted me to let you know that the bookshop is selling my book, The Defining Decade, in the back. Um, I'll be around to sign copies for anyone who's interested. I want to start today by telling you about a study. It's a rare study of lifespan development where researchers at Boston University and University of Michigan examined dozens of life stories written by prominent, successful people toward the end of their lives. They were interested in what are called autobiographically consequential experiences, or the circumstances and people that had the strongest influence on how life unfolded thereafter. While important events took place from birth until death, those that determine the years ahead were most heavily concentrated during the 20-something years, with 80% of life's most defining moments taking place by age 35. It would make sense that as we leave home or college, We experience a burst of self-creation and what we do determines who we will become. It might even seem like adulthood is one long stretch of autobiographically consequential experiences that the older we get, the more we direct our own lives. This is not true. In our 30s, consequential experiences start to slow. School will be over or nearly so. We will have invested time in careers or made the choice not to. We or our friends may be in relationships and starting families. We may own homes or have other responsibilities that make it difficult to change direction. As 30-somethings and beyond, we largely continue with or correct for the moves we made during our 20-something years. The deceptive irony is that our 20s may not feel all that consequential. It's easy to imagine that life's significant experiences begin with big moments and exciting encounters, but this is not how it happens. Researchers in this same study found that most of the substantial and lasting events, those that led to career success, family fortune, personal bliss, or lack thereof, developed across days or weeks or months with little immediate dramatic effect. The importance of these experiences was not necessarily clear at the time, but in retrospect, the subjects recognized that these events had sharply defined their futures. To a great extent, our lives are decided by far-reaching 20-something moments we may not realize are happening at all. When Kate started therapy, she'd been waiting tables and living and fighting with her parents for more than a year. Her father called to schedule her first appointment and both of them presumed that father-daughter issues would come quickly to the fore. But what most struck me about Kate was that her 20s were wasting away. Having grown up in New York City and at age 26 and now living in Virginia, she still did not have a driver's license, despite the fact that this limited her employment opportunities and made her feel like a passenger in her own life. Not unrelated to this, Kate was often late to our appointments. When Kate graduated from college, she hoped to experience the expansiveness of the 20-something years. She thought she was supposed to be having the time of her life, but mostly she felt stressed and anxious. My 20s are paralyzing, she said. No one told me it would be this hard. Kate filled her mind with 20-something drama to distract herself from the real state of her life, and she seemed to want the same for her therapy hours. When she came to sessions, she kicked off her Toms, hiked up her jeans, and caught me up on the weekend. Our conversations often went multimedia as she pulled up texts and photos to show me, and tweets chirped into our sessions with late breaking news. Somewhere between the weekend updates, I found out the following. She thought she might like to work in fundraising and she hoped to figure out what she wanted to do by age 30. 30 is the new 20, she said. This was my cue. I am too passionate about the 20s to let Kate or any other 20-something waste his or her time. As a clinical psychologist who specializes in adult development and in 20-somethings in particular, I've seen countless 20-somethings spend too many years living without perspective. What is worse are the tears shed by 30-somethings and 40-somethings because they're now paying a steep price professionally, romantically, economically, reproductively for their lack of vision in the 20s. I liked Kate and I wanted to help her, so I insisted that she be on time for sessions. I interrupted stories about the latest hookup to inquire about the status of her driver's license and her job search. Perhaps most important, Kate and I debated what therapy and her 20s were supposed to be about. Kate wondered aloud whether she ought to spend a few years in therapy figuring out her relationship with, fa- with her father or whether she should use that money and time on a year rail pass to figure out who she was. I voted for neither. I told Kate that while most therapists would agree with Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living, a lesser-known quote by American psychologist Sheldon Kopp might be more important here, the unlived life is not worth examining. I explained it would be irresponsible for me to sit quietly while I watch the most foundational years of her life go parading by. It would be reckless for us to focus on Kate's past when her future was in danger. And it seemed unfair to talk about her weekends when it was her weekdays that made her so unhappy. I also genuinely felt that Kate's relationship with her father could not change until she had something new to bring to it. Not long after these conversations, Kate dropped onto the couch in my office, uncharacteristically teary and agitated. She stared out the window and bounced her legs nervously as she told me about Sunday brunch with four friends from college. Two were in town for a conference. One had just returned from recording lullabies in Greece for her dissertation research, and another brought along her fiancé. As the group sat at their table, Kate looked around and felt behind. She wanted what her friends had, a job or a purpose or a boyfriend, so she spent the rest of the day looking for leads on Craigslist. Most of the jobs and the men didn't seem interesting and the ones that did, she was starting to doubt she could get. Kate went to bed feeling vaguely betrayed. In my office, she said, my 20s are more than half over and sitting at the restaurant I realized I didn't have anything to show for myself. No real resume, no relationship, I don't even know what I'm doing in this town. She reached for a tissue and broke into tears. I really got kicked by the notion that getting clear on your path was overrated. I wish I'd been more, I don't know, intentional. It wasn't too late for Kate, but she did need to get going. By the time her therapy ended, she had her own apartment, a driver's license, a boyfriend with some potential, a job as a fundraiser for a nonprofit. Even her relationship with her father was improving. In our last sessions together, Kate thanked me for helping her catch up. She said she finally felt like she was living her life in real time. The 20-something years are real time and ought to be lived that way. A A 30 is the new 20 culture has told us that the 20s don't matter. Freud once said, love and work, work and love, that's all there is. And these things take shape later than they used to. When Kate's parents were in their 20s, the average 21-year-old was married and caring for a new baby. School ended with high school or maybe college, and young parents focused on making money and keeping house. Because one income was typically enough to support a family, men worked, but two-thirds of the women did not. The men and women who did work could expect to stay in the same field or even the same job for life. In those days the median home price in the United States was $17,000 and divorce and the pill were just becoming mainstream. Then in the span of one generation came an enormous cultural shift. User-friendly birth control flooded the market and women flooded the workplace. By the new millennium only about half of 20-somethings were married by age 30 and even fewer had children making the 20s a time of newfound freedom. For hundreds of years, 20-somethings have moved directly from being sons and daughters to being husbands and wives. But within just a few decades, a new developmental period opened up. Waking up every day somewhere between their childhood homes and their own mortgages, 20-somethings like Kate aren't sure what to make of the time. Almost by definition, the 20s have become a betwixt and between time. Some say the 20-something years are an extended adolescence and others call them an emerging adulthood. This so-called changing timetable for adulthood has demoted 20-somethings to not quite adults just when they need to engage the most. College in the 20s have become a sort of Las Vegas in the life cycle. A time when our choices aren't real, and what we do doesn't count. Twenty-somethings like Kate have been caught in a swirl of hype and misunderstanding, much of which has trivialized what is actually the most defining decade of our adult lives. Yet even as we dismiss the twenty-something years, we fetishize them. The twenty-something years have never been more popped more in the zeitgeist. Popular culture has an almost obsessive focus on the 20s, such that these freebie years appear to be all that exist. Childhood celebrities and everyday kids spend their youth acting 20, while mature adults and the real real housewives dress and are sculpted to look 29. The young look older and the old look younger, collapsing the adult lifespan into one long 20-something ride. This is a contradictory and dangerous message. We're led to to believe that the 20-something years don't matter, yet with the glamorization of and near obsession with the 20s, there is little to remind us that anything else ever will. This causes too many young men and women to squander the most transformative years of their adult lives, only to pay the price in decades to come. Our cultural attitude toward the 20s is something like good old American irrational exuberance. 21st century 20-somethings have grown up alongside the dot-com craze, the supersized years, the housing bubble, the Wall Street boom. Adults of all ages failed to do the math, and they fell into what psychologists call unrealistic optimism, the idea that nothing bad will ever happen to you. Now 20-somethings have been set up to be another bubble ready to burst. Inside my office I have seen the bust. The Great Recession and its continuing aftermath have left many 20-somethings feeling naive and even devastated. 20-somethings are more educated than ever before but a smaller percentage find work after college. Many entry-level jobs have gone overseas making it more difficult for 20-somethings to gain a foothold at home. With a contracting economy and a growing population, um, unemployment is at its highest in decades and an unpaid internship is the new starter job. About a quarter of 20-somethings are out of work and another quarter work only part-time. 20-somethings who do have paying jobs earn less than their 1970s counterparts when adjusted for inflation. Because short-term work has replaced long-term careers in our country, as jobs come and go, so do 20-somethings themselves. The average 20-something will have more than a handful of jobs in their 20s alone. One-third will move in any given year, leaving family and friends and resumes and identities scattered. About one in eight go back home to live with mom or dad, at least in part because salaries are down and college debt is up with the number of students owing more than $40,000 having increased tenfold in the last 10 years. It seems everybody wants to be a 20-something, except for most 20-somethings themselves. All around, 30 is the new 20, is starting to get a new reaction. God, I hope not. Every day, I work with 20-somethings who feels horribly deceived by the idea that their 20s were gonna be the best years of their lives. People imagine that to do therapy with 20-somethings is to listen to the adventures and misadventures of carefree people, and there is some of that. But behind closed doors, my clients have unsettling things to say. I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean, like I could swim in any direction, but I can't see land on any side, so I don't know which way to go. I feel like I have to just keep hooking up and see what sticks. I didn't know I'd be crying in the bathroom at work every day. My sister is 35 and single. I'm terrified that's going to happen to me. I'd better not still be doing this at 30. Last night, I prayed for just one thing to be certain. There are 50 million 20-somethings in the United States, most of whom are living with a staggering, unprecedented amount of uncertainty. Many have no idea what they'll be doing, where they'll be living, or who they will be with in two or ten years. They don't know when they'll be happy or when they'll be able to pay their bills. They wonder if they should be photographers or lawyers or bankers, and they don't know whether they're a few dates or many years away from a meaningful relationship. They worry about whether they will have families and whether their marriages will last. Most simply, they don't know if their lives will work out, and they don't know what to do. Uncertainty makes people anxious, and distraction is the 21st century opiate of the masses. So 20-somethings like Kate are tempted and even encouraged to turn away and be Twixters, to close their eyes and hope for the best. But even more compelling than my sessions with struggling 20-somethings are my sessions with the earliest Twixters, the now 30-somethings and 40-somethings who wish they'd done some things differently. I have witnessed the true heartache that accompanies the realization that life is not going to add up. We may hear that 30 is the new 20, but recession or not, when it comes to work and love and the brain and the body, 40 is definitely not the new 30. Many 20-somethings assume that life will come together quickly after 30, And maybe it will, but it is still going to be a different life. We imagine that if nothing happens in our 20s, we've left all of our options open for our 30s. We think that by avoiding decisions now, we can do anything we want later. But not making choices is a choice all the same. When a lot has been left to do, there is enormous 30-something pressure to get ahead, get married, pick a city, make money, buy a house, enjoy life, go to graduate school, start a business, get a promotion, save for college and retirement, and have two or three children in a shorter period of time. Many of these things are incompatible, and as the research is just starting to show, simply harder to do all at the same time in our 30s. Life does not end at 30 but it does have a categorically different feel. A spotty resume that used to reflect 20-something freedom suddenly seems suspect and embarrassing. A good first date leads not so much to romantic fantasies about the one as it does to calculations about the soonest time marriage and a baby might happen. Of course for many it does happen and upon the birth of their first child, many 30-something couples speak of a newfound purpose and meaning. There can also be deep and heart-wrenching regret. Knowing it will be difficult to provide for their child as they now wish they could. Finding that fertility problems or sheer exhaustion stand in the way of the families that they now want. Recognizing they may never know their own grandchildren. The post-millennial midlife crisis isn't buying a red sports car. It's figuring out that while we were busy making sure we didn't miss out on anything, we were were setting ourselves to miss out on some of the most important things of all. It is realizing that doing something later is not automatically the same thing as doing something better. Too many smart, well-meaning 30-somethings and 40-somethings grieve a little as they face a lifetime of catching up. They look at themselves and at me sitting across the room and they say about their 20s, what was I thinking, what was I doing? When we think about child development, we all know that the first five years are a critical period for language, attachment, and the brain. A time when our experiences have an inordinate impact on who we will become. What we hear less about, though, is that there's such a thing as adult development and that the 20s are that critical period for adulthood. Consider this. Two-thirds of lifetime wage growth happens in the first 10 years of a career. More than half of Americans are married or are dating or living with their future partner by age 30. The brain caps off its last growth spurt in our 20s. Personality changes more in our 20s than at any time before or after, and female fertility peaks at age 28. A colleague of mine likes to say that 20-somethings are like airplanes, planes just leaving New York City, bound for somewhere west. Right after takeoff, a slight change in course is the difference between landing in Seattle or San Diego but once a plane is nearly in San Diego, only a big detour is going to redirect it to the Northwest. Likewise, during our 20-something years, even a small shift can radically change where we end up in our 30s and beyond. It's an up in the air and turbulent time, but if you can figure out how to navigate even a little bit, you can get further faster than at any other time in life. It is a pivotal time, a time when the things you do and the things you don't do will have an enormous effect across years and even generations to come. So for me, and most of the alums sitting out there today, it's too late for us. Our lives have been mostly decided. (laughs) But since my book, The Defining Decade, came out in April, I have received countless emails Not only from 20-somethings, but also from their parents and their grandparents and their bosses and their aunts and their uncles. The most common sentiments are like this, from those over 20 I hear, I'm giving your book to all the 20-somethings in my life for graduation. Or for my birthday this year, I have asked my 20-something son or daughter to read your book. And from 20-somethings themselves I hear, why didn't someone tell me all this sooner? like when I was in college. So here goes, here are five simple ways that you or the 20-something in your life can change his or her course, starting this year or even today. Number one, know the strength of weak ties. I once had a fortune cookie that says, a wise man makes his own luck. Perhaps the single best thing anyone of any age can do to make his or her own luck is to tap into what is called the strength of weak ties. The twenty-something years are portrayed as a time when you mostly huddle together with your best friends or your urban tribe. But you are hearing it from me today, the urban tribe is overrated. Twenty-somethings are in almost constant communication with the same few people but those who cluster together with like-minded peers limit who they know, what they know, how they speak, how they think, and ultimately where they work. Here's why. In research that predates Facebook by more than 25 years, sociologist and Stanford professor Mark Granovetter conducted one of the first and most famous studies of social networks. Granovetter was curious about how networks foster social mobility, about how the people in our lives lead to new opportunities. Surveying workers in a Boston suburb who had recently changed jobs, Granovetter found it wasn't close friends and family who were most helpful during the job hunt. Rather, more than three-quarters of new jobs had come from leads from contacts who were seen only occasionally or rarely. This finding led Granovetter to write a groundbreaking paper titled The Strength of Weak Ties, about the unique value of people we do not know well. Weak ties are the people we've met or are loosely connected to somehow. Maybe they're the professors we rarely talk to, or our old roommate's cousin that we recognize but are, are afraid to greet, or they are our former employers, or those acquaintances we keep meaning to go out with but never do. Weak ties give us access to something fresh, because they're not just figures in an already ingrown crowd, they know things and people that we don't know. New information, new opportunities, even new people to date almost always come from outside the inner circle. Weak ties are like bridges you cannot see all the way across, so there's no telling where they may lead. A much tweeted study of government data recently reported that about half of recent college grads are un or underemployed? Well, half aren't. So my first piece of advice is to get yourself or the 20-something in your life into that group. Weak tides are how 20-somethings are getting jobs and internships, even in this economy. It's not coming from best friends or even from GPAs. It's coming from one or two good leads from acquaintances. I didn't do everything right in college. I did go to UVA, which was definitely a wonderful decision, but I wasn't the valedictorian. I didn't live on the lawn. I wasn't even the darling in my department. But that one professor that I made a connection with, that poor guy wrote me countless of letters of recommendations over the years and got me dozens of interviews and grants and jobs. It starts with just one. But too many smart, interesting, personable students in 20-somethings graduate or leave jobs without a single contact who will write a letter or send an email on their behalf. Don't let this happen to you or the 20-something in your life. Research shows that our social networks narrow as we age, as careers and families become busier and more defined. So this is the time to be connecting, not just with the same old people having the same old conversations about how work is lame or there are no good men out there, but with those who might see things a little differently. In an era when it is so easy to stay in your room or apartment and get class notes online and communicate with mentors only over email, Woody Allen has never been more right on with his comment that 80% of life is showing up. Show up to class, show up to office hours, show up to special events like this one, show up to informational interviews and career fairs, and you're 80% there. Number two, beware of the Starbucks phase. Psychologist Eric Erickson was ahead of his time when in 1950 he coined the term identity crisis. At a time when adult roles were as ready-made as TV dinners, he felt that a true and authentic identity should not be rushed. He advocated for a period of delay when youth could safely explore without real obligation. For some, this period was college. For others, such as Erickson, it was a personal walkabout. Either way, he stressed the importance of coming into one's own. But as the concept of the identity crisis caught on in the United States, Erickson himself warned against spending too much time in disengaged confusion. He was concerned that too many young people were in danger of becoming irrelevant. Again, he was ahead of his time. Now we know that the longer it takes young adults to get their footing and work, the more likely they are to become, as one journalist put it, different and damaged. Research on 20-somethings shows that those who were underemployed for as little as nine months tend to be more depressed and less motivated than their peers. And 20-something unemployment is associated with drinking and depression in middle age, even after becoming regularly employed. I have seen what one of my clients calls the Starbucks phase unfold many times. I have watched 20-somethings drag out their identity crises as they drag themselves through years of underemployment, all the while becoming too tired and too alienated to look for something better. Their dreams seem increasingly distant as people treat them like the name tags that they wear. In today's economy, very few people, even those who use their weak ties, make it to 30 without some underemployment. So what is a 20-something to do? How do you make yourself relevant? Recognize that not all underemployment is the same. I always advise 20-somethings to take the job with the most identity capital. Identity capital is our collection of personal assets. These are the things that we do that add value to who we are. Some identity capital goes on a resume, such as degrees or internships, jobs or clubs or test scores. Some identity capital is more personal, such as where we're from or how we present ourselves online or even how we write an email. Most important, identity capital is what we bring to the adult marketplace. It's what we use to metaphorically purchase jobs and other things that we want. Twenty-somethings who take the time to explore but who also earn capital along the way construct stronger identities. They have higher self-esteem and are more persevering and realistic. This path to identity is associated with a host of positive outcomes, including a clearer sense of self and greater life satisfaction. For most of us, careers are made out of a couple of door-opening pieces of identity capital, so I always tell my clients to be sure they're earning some. Interviewers are going to lean forward and say, I want to hear more about UVA, or your internship at the NIH, or your time at Teach for America. But no one is going to start off a job or a grad school interview by saying, so tell me about working at a coffee shop. Number three, know that the 20-something brain is an opportunity and not a handicap. Last month in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article titled, Delayed Development? Blame the 20-something Brain. The article rested on the fact that the frontal lobe, the part of the brain where we do things like plan for the future and tackle questions that don't have black and white answers, such as, what should I do with my life, does not reach full maturity until sometime during our 20s. The science is correct, but unfortunately, this fact about the late-maturing frontal lobe has been misinterpreted in the popular press as a directive for 20-somethings to wait around for their brains to grow up. Then somehow they'll know all the answers. Then life will be certain. But rather than learning to tolerate uncertainty, 20-somethings are left waiting for a certainty that is never going to come. Dumbing down college in the 20s is no way to go. The young adult brain is still developing, but that doesn't mean 20-somethings can't start their lives or get through a tough day without calling their mom or their dad. Far from being an irrelevant downtime, our 20s are a developmental sweet spot that comes only once. Because our 20s are the capstone of the brain's last growth spurt, they are, as one neurologist said, a time of great risk and great opportunity. The post-20-something brain is still plastic, of course, but never again in our lifetime will it be so easy to learn new things. Never again will we be able to be so quickly become the people we hope to be. The risk is that we may not act now. In a use-it-or-lose-it fashion, the frontal lobe connections we use in our 20s are preserved and quickened and those we don't use just waste away through pruning. In neuroscience, this is known as survival of the busiest. As neurons that fire together wire together, the classes we take, the jobs we have, the skills we practice, and even the company we keep are wiring our frontal lobes for adulthood. And these same frontal lobes, in turn, are making our decisions in the workplace and on Saturday nights. Back and forth it goes as work and life and the brain knit together in our 20s to make us into the adults we will become. One of the reasons I love to work with 20 somethings, I have to admit, is that they're so darn easy to help. They and their brains can change so quickly and so profoundly, this is a time when the right class or the right mentor or the right job or the right relationship can do an enormous amount of good in a very short period of time. In no way do I expect the 20-year-old that I work with today to look much, if anything, like the 25-year-old or the 29-year-old I might cross paths with down the road. This brings me to... Number four, whatever it is you want to change about yourself, the 20s are the time to change it. For many years there's been a spirited debate amongst personality researchers about whether people change after 30. Numerous studies have shown that relatively speaking we don't. That after 30 our thoughts and feelings and behaviors remain incredibly stable Those who are extroverted keep on being extroverted. Those who are conscientious keep on being conscientious. But there is still some disagreement about exactly how much people don't change. One side says, barring interventions or catastrophic events, personality traits appear to be essentially fixed after 30. The other side is more optimistic, holding out for change, albeit small in magnitude. Whether after 30 we can expect to change a bit or not at all, what all sides of the post-30 debate have recently come to agree on is something that many clinicians have known all along. That our personalities change more during our 20s than any time before or after. This is big news because conventional wisdom tells us that childhood is when our personalities are on the move. There's the Jesuit maxim, give me the child until he's seven and I'll give you the man. Freud's theory of personality development ended at puberty. We now know that our 20s are our best chance for change. I have seen 20-somethings move from socially anxious to socially confident enough or get beyond years of childhood unhappiness in a relatively short period of time. And because these changes are happening, just as careers and relationships are being decided, these same small shifts can lead to very different lives. I once supervised a psychology graduate student who told me she disliked working with young adults. She said when she worked with older adults, she felt like a medical examiner. Like her job was to figure out what had gone wrong in people's lives and bring closure around that. She imagined she was investigating a death of sorts, finding problems that led to divorce or career failure or some other personal demise. When she worked with 20-somethings, this graduate student said she felt more pressure. She worried she might make them better or worse. She said she felt there was more on the table. This student may not have fully understood therapy with older adults, but she was right about one thing. The 20s are no time for a post-mortem. Life isn't over, it is not too late. In fact, numerous studies from around the world show that life starts to feel better across our 20-something years. We become more emotionally stable and less tossed around by life's ups and downs. We become more conscientious and responsible, and we become happier and confident and less anxious and angry. But these sorts of changes don't happen for everyone. They don't just happen in your brain. So you may be asking, how can they happen for me or the 20-something that I know? I'm a therapist, so you might think this is when I'm gonna hand out some cards, but I'm not. Instead, I'll tell you a quote by psychoanalyst Karen Horney, life itself still remains a very effective therapist. Positive personality changes come from what researchers call getting along and getting ahead. Feeling better doesn't come from avoiding adulthood, it comes from investing in adulthood. So my advice based on the research and on a decade of clinical experience with twenty-somethings is this. If you want to be a happier and more confident person at any age but especially in your twenties, engage with life, engage with your relationships, and get the best job that you can. A great job or career may seem elusive, especially in your 20s, but even working towards these things make us happier. Twenty-somethings who experience even some academic or workplace success are more confident and positive and responsible than those who do not. And even simply having goals can make us happier and more confident both now and later. In one study that followed nearly 500 young adults from college to the mid-30s, increased goal setting in college led to greater purpose, mastery, and agency and well-being in the 30s. Goals have been called the building blocks of personality, so it is worth considering that who you will be 10 years down the line is being built out of the goals you are setting for yourself today. And last, but far from least. Number five, pick your family and not just your friends. We've all heard the saying, you can't pick your family, but you can pick your friends. That may have been true growing up, but very soon, most 20-somethings will pick their families when they marry or partner with someone and create families of their own. Whatever your age, if you want to have it all, you're going to need to partner well. Today's young adults spend more time single than any generation in history. Most will spend years on their own somewhere between their childhood homes and families of their own. Currently, the average age for first marriage is 26 for women and 28 for men, with more than half of of Americans marrying over the age of 25. As passe or postponed as marriage or partnership may seem, What is even less in vogue is talking about it. Popular magazines portray 20-something culture as dominated by singles who are almost obsessed with avoiding commitment. But behind closed doors, I hear a different story. I have yet to meet a 20-something who doesn't want to get married or at least find a committed relationship, usually sooner rather than later. The clients with fast-paced lives or high-profile jobs just feel compelled to whisper about it. It seems too conventional, or at least politically incorrect, to be strategic about such things, such as love and family. We seem to believe that relationships are completely out of our control. But even though marriage may seem almost irrelevant to someone in their 20s, most 20-somethings, male, female, gay, or straight, will be married or partnered or dating or living with their partner within 10 years' time. Unfortunately, many of, the, many of my clients willingly have low-criteria or no-criteria relationships because they don't think that who they date matters. But dating down can be dangerous, because besides creating bad habits and low expectations, suddenly that person we never had any intention of staying with starts to look better than starting over, especially as the engagement notifications on Facebook start popping up. As one of my 30-something clients said to me, dating in my 20s was like musical chairs. Everybody was running around and having fun, but then suddenly the music stopped and everybody started sitting down. I didn't want to be the only one left standing up, so sometimes I think I married my husband because he was the closest chair to me at 30. (laughs) Don't do that! (laughs) I tell my 20-something clients, don't be fooled into thinking that doing something later in and of itself is going to be the same as doing something better. Use these in-between years to direct not just your sexuality, that's the easy part, but your relationships as well. It's never too early to be as ambitious about love as you are about work or school. When I was a 20-something graduate student, I saw my first psychotherapy client, a 26-year-old named Alex. When Alex was assigned to me, I felt relieved. I hadn't been a graduate student long enough to be an expert in anything, but the 20s I thought I could handle. Alex didn't meet the criteria for any disorder, and with the funny stories she brought to session, it was easy for me to nod my head while we kicked the can down the road. But it was my job to take Alex's 20-something life seriously. I just didn't know it yet. My supervisor informed me that the nodding therapists we see on television are stereotypes, and that if I wanted to be helpful, I needed to be less patient. This was good news, because I am an impatient person. But I didn't know what to be less patient about. Hadn't my supervisor heard? Work happened later, marriage happened later, kids happened later, even death happened later. So 20-somethings, like Alex and myself, had nothing but time. To me, Alex's life seemed difficult, but kind of trivial. The way I saw it, her real life hadn't started yet. She was job hopping and hooking up with men. She wasn't raising kids or preparing for tenure. When my supervisor pushed me to take up Alex's current relationship, I protested. I said, sure, she's dating down, but it's not like she's going to marry the guy. Then my supervisor said, not yet but she might marry the next one. Regardless, the best time to work on Alex's marriage is before she has one. She had me there. I'm gonna end my talk this morning in the same way I end my book, by talking about a sign on the side of the road. There is a sign just outside of Rocky Mountain National Park that reads in big bold letters, Mountains Don't Care. It is a sign about preparedness and it goes on to educate mountain goers about lightning and avalanches and proper equipment. I was about 25 years old when I first saw this sign. It was scary, but I remember liking it immediately. It meant something to me that the sign was just telling it the way that it is. It was reminding me that when I went into the wilderness, I had to know what I was getting into and I had to be ready. If I got caught on a peak in a late afternoon lightning storm, it wasn't going to matter whether I meant to get off the mountain sooner or even whether I was a really nice person. Adulthood is sort of like that. There are things that just are what they are, so the smartest thing to do is to know as much about them as you can. In one way or another, almost every 20-something client I have wonders, will things work out for me? The uncertainty behind that question is what makes 20-something life so difficult, but it's also what makes 20-something action so possible and so necessary. It's unsettling to not know the future, and in a way even more daunting to consider that what we are doing with our 20-something years may be determining it. It's almost a relief to imagine that these years aren't real and that our 20-something jobs and relationships don't count but a career spent studying adult development tells me this is far from true. And years of listening closely to clients and students tells me that deep down 20-somethings want to be taken seriously and they want their lives to be taken seriously. They want to know that what they do matters and it does. I saw the mountains don't care sign when I was headed into the Rockies on a backpacking trip. Probably because the sun unnerved me, I stopped in at the back country office to clear my itinerary with the ranger. To get to the first valley where I would camp, I needed to walk some miles in and hike switchback up the scree of a mountain. Then I would cut diagonally across a steep snow slope to the saddle between two peaks, and there I could pop over the ridge and down the other side before nightfall. This wasn't especially dangerous given that I was experienced and had the right gear, but I did need to get to the snow slope fast enough so I could cross it before too many hours from the sun, of heat from the sun made it susceptible to slide. I knew the pace at which I needed to hike and the angle of the slope, but still I felt nervous. As I gathered up my maps and turned to go, I hesitated and I asked the ranger, am I going to make it? He looked at me and said, you haven't decided yet. At the time, I thought this man was not a particularly good backcountry ranger, (laughs) but now I have to laugh. He was telling me what I say to my 20-something clients every day, what this talk has been all about. The future isn't written in the stars. There are no guarantees, so claim your adulthood, be intentional, Get to work, pick your own family, make your own certainty. Don't be defined by what you didn't know or didn't do. You're deciding your life right now. Thank you. So how do y'all usually do this? Q&A just starts, okay. Questions. I'm happy to
2: take them. When I was in my early 20s, I had a very fortunate thing happen, and you taxpayers sent me on a four-year cruise on the USS Wasp. And I think there are probably other people in the room that have benefited from from the draft years. And I think it helped a lot of us in our 20s. It was usually three to four years a time. Mm-hmm. I give it a lot of credit for that.
1: Uh huh. Yes, I um, thank you for that. I, I, it's been interesting writing this book. I actually started this book uh, when I was on faculty at UC Berkeley, and I finished it on faculty here at UVA. And you might have heard that culturally. Berkeley and UVA are pretty different. So when I was teaching at Berkeley, I thought, oh my God, this book is so necessary. And then I got to UVA and thought, maybe it's only necessary in Berkeley. Somehow all the students here are fully aware that their 20s matter and they can be smart and they can get started. Um, But you're you're pointing out something really important is that 20-somethings are a lot more capable of taking on the world than we give them credit for. for me, um, I was an Outward Bound instructor my first few years in my 20s, which may seem like a identity crisis thing to do, but it had a lot of capital, and it was also very good for me as a person, for my personality and my brain, because I was in charge of keeping myself and other people alive every single day. and It made me realize that as a 20-something, I can, I can take charge of that, and it gave me a groundedness that I think 20-somethings who don't take on the world as much as they can when they're young, they never really get that that confidence and that groundedness. Other questions? Yes. Yes.
2: I'm I'm very concerned about how many young folks can't find jobs, so I'd like to share what I told my three kids when they were in their 20s. Love to hear it. And that was simply find an area you're interested in and take any job in that organization, any job. And my first son took a job as, and he was an SMU graduate and was working as a bouncer at the time, as a um, accounts payable clerk, one of the lowest paying jobs at Neiman Marcus. Within a year, he was in database marketing. Work, you know, his career was off and running.
1: Absolutely. My
2: my second son was a graduate of UCSB. uh, I mean, University of California, Santa Barbara in biology. He took a summer internship at Amgen. Within three months he discovered a process change that led to a patent and obviously a full-time job. And then my daughter who was a graduate of Virginia Tech in marketing took a job with Sprint in communications engineering program which I didn't even know she could spell engineering. <laughs> and and within a year she was one of the top engineers in the Northeast. So it's it's just You know, just do it, I guess, is the... Yes, absolutely.
1: Well, you gave them very good advice because we... I think when we look at uh, millennials or Gen Xers as I was, one of the the benefits that we have is that we have a bit of time to, to put our careers together in a way that might feel good to us, but you don't do that by hanging out with your friends and talking about it or working in a coffee shop unless you want to go into the hospitality industry. Um, you do that by saying, what do I know so far? What can I get that, You know, based on what I know? And then you meet people, you make a name for yourself and you go from there. So you gave your kids some great advice.
2: Hi, Hi. Um, first of all, I'm a 21 year old so this is good Yes, <laughs> um, um, I'd actually like to add a little twist to what you said um, I'd like to ask you how would it be like uh, may- many, maybe many of us have friends or family members who um, at, their young, at their early 20s they already have a kid so how would you say how would you kind of twist your
1: suggestions to someone who's already carrying a kid Right. Well, that person might have started with what they know, and for that person, maybe what they knew is, I'm ready to get started on family. Um, I think there are different ways to start your life, and for some people, starting their life is going to be with, I'm going to start with work first, and then I'm going to add family. For some people, it's going to be, I'm going to start family, and I'm going to add work later. For most of us, most families these days need both parents to work, so most of us are going to need to figure out how to put those things together. But for some people work comes first, for some people family comes first. And, and I respect that. I think there is a false separation between being modern or, or even liberal or feminist and, um, and, and family. And as someone who went to Berkeley and has a PhD in gender studies, I'm the first one to tell you families are important. And I think all young people, women especially, need to know that they don't have forever to have the families that they might want. And so if you're in your 20s and you know you've found your partner and you have a great relationship, you know you want to start on family, more power to you. Hi, Dr. J. Hi. Um, I just have a question kind of extending on what this other young woman said. Um, on the balance between the advice that people give you in terms of living it up and um, have it enjoying and really savoring the freedom that you have during your 20s, and also taking advantage and kind of making those commitments and taking your life seriously in your 20s as well. So how to really balance that really conflicting advice that 20-year-olds get. Yes, they do get. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think adulthood, has, adulthood is about multitasking. And what we do know about the 20-something brain, it tends to think in black and white. And these are the years when you need to shift into those shades of gray. And I don't mean those books that are circulating right now. Um, that's not what I'm shooting for. But um to think about life as multitasking and, and gray areas and that you can get going on your life and still enjoy yourself at the same time. These things do actually happen. The older adults in the room could attest to the fact that work and family and enjoyment and happiness actually do go together. But I think the way 20-somethings hear it is older adults, especially those who settled down young and fast, they idealize what it would be like to just be footloose and fancy free for ten years—it's um, not all that great because you're usually broke and stressed and alone on Sundays, which kind of stinks. Um, so it's not as great as people think it's going to be. And most twenty-somethings, based on the ones that I've worked with and the research, they're happiest when they do have a balance, a multitasked life of work they feel good about, relationships they feel respect themselves, um, and. And they enjoy that, you know, maybe they don't have mortgages yet, um, or children. Um, there was one more. If I think of my other thought about that, I'll come back to you. Thank you.
2: Okay, well, uh, I really appreciate your lecture. Well, I'm from China, and I'm the mother of uh, uh, the beginning of uh, 20, uh daughter. My daughter is a kind of a medical student, and now, well, she is overwhelmed by the courses from her... Uh, department. I mean, medical department. Okay, and she is suffering from insomnia for the mm-hmm. whole month. And what I can do is to just uh, persuade her to keep calm and uh, work harder. But uh, things does not work. Okay, so would you please just give us um, give me the somewhat detailed advice? Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> no problem. Um, well, I don't know if I can give you detailed advice, but I can give you some some broad advice that most 20-somethings don't know how to manage their emotions, and, and that is part of the fact that, that their brains are still developing, and the frontal lobe, the part that is responsible for the rational thinking that counterbalances the amygdala, which is emotions, pleasure, sex, hunger, that's been... Fully ready to go, to go for quite some time now. So, these are the years when young people do need to learn how to balance, I mean, how to handle their emotions, their stress about grad school or about work. I always tell people that my job in a week, I probably see 30, 40, 20 somethings, and there's always a chunk that I'm helping get through college and there's a chunk that I'm helping get into grad school or get jobs or to get relationships, and then there's the chunk that I'm helping deal with the grad school and the jobs and the relationships that I helped them get. And so they get into it and then realize it's very stressful to be in trouble at work or to be reprimanded by your boss or to not know if your boyfriend is going to want to keep going out with you. And that it's um, not necessarily a sign that something's, Very wrong with your daughter, that she hasn't learned how to manage that stress yet, but that's a big part of what the 20s are about. So um, she might benefit from um, therapy with someone. She might benefit from books on mindfulness. I think one reason why yoga and mindfulness are taking the country by storm is that we're living in a very anxious time um, and also a time where people aren't used to tolerating anxiety. They're used to having their problems solved immediately. And there's a lot of problems in adulthood, such as medical school, that aren't solved immediately. So she might like um, some books on mindfulness, which I could suggest to you after, if you would like. One more question. Yes. Yes, sir. Hi.
3: Uh, I'm uh, in my 60-somethings. But I think that all of those decades, if we decadize ourselves, are just as rewarding and fulfilling. Absolute. I just find myself having different values. My connection is not necessarily about my future. It's about other people's future, about the life of my community, about the existence of my planet. And all of these things are just as challenging. And I don't feel any less uh, like my time has come and gone. I think my time is here and is growing. And I think it's a matter of being uh, that we all just need to be mindful of what's going on and have a clear idea of how we can fit ourselves into these activities that are rewarding for others as well as ourselves, and right. so, so the the I feel some people getting the notion that maybe our time has come and gone, but I, I disagree. I think my time is ahead. Right. So I'd like to share that with all of the
1: other. Sure. sure. Well, I mean, actually. That's a lot of what the message of the book really is for people who have read it. It's not that the most important decade of your life, it's the 20s. It's that it's a critical period in terms of development. But part of the big message I give to a lot of my clients and students is these are not the most important years of your life. I mean, in terms of what feels meaningful, that we all know the older we get, the more likely we are to be engaged in things that, that we really feel like matter. Um, And I know for me, my life felt a lot more meaningful and a lot happier in my 30s than in my 20s. Now in my 40s, it feels more meaningful and happier than it did before. And I think that's the message that a lot of 20-somethings aren't getting, that they hear from culture um, or from some older adults in their lives that these are the best years of your life. I do not think these are the best years of adulthood. I think they're some of the hardest, the most uncertain, the most difficult but potentially the most transformative developmentally but in no way do I think they're the most important. I mean if I were at the end of my life and I could do 10 years again, it would not be my 20s. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Maybe be every other decade perhaps. Yes, ma'am. I just like to say thank you.
3: On behalf of the Alumni Association and the Office of Engagement, we've got a small gift for uh, Meg J. Thank her again. She'll be signing books. The university bookstore will be selling books in the back.